Hello, and welcome to Signs, Cosines, and Tangents. I'm Jared, and I'm Cosines. Wait, no. no Sean. You're, you're Signs. Signs. Sean. This is your show. It is. It is. It, and then that's really kind of... I shouldn't know that by now, right? I would think so. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to work on that. You know, every time we start this, it always feels awkward. Awkward. I think that's really true to our characters. <laughs> at least m- myself. Well, and not because, you know, the two of us having a conversation for an hour and a half is awkward, because this is actually toned down from some of our interpersonal interactions. But uh, just kind of rolling into the beginning, like having a start to a conversation instead of some kind of random starting point. Hey, Sean, we're starting a conversation now. This is a good place to... What are we doing? Starting a conversation. Oh, yes. Yeah, starting. Right now. Yeah, right now. Okay. Anyway, so we've blown enough of the first... So the first two minutes of the podcast is talking about how we don't know how to make a podcast. Yep. We do that every week, it seems. Yep. That's our intro. That's our thing. That's our thing. Okay. We're known for that. Not We're known knowing for how that. To start. People come to us for our awkward intros. <laughs> awkward. 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 Hey, so Sean. Yes. This week we're going to talk about something that is called roguelikes. Yeah, we'll talk about why. It has nothing to do with the X-Men. No? Though I like Rogue. And a pack one Rogue? Oh, no. Okay. No. So we're going to start off some tangents. Some of these may be roguelike. Yeah, yeah, we're mixing it up a little bit by not mixing it up at all this week with our tangents. So we have some pop culture kind of conversation points, but we, we thought we'd kind of focus our tangents on the topic area and see how that works because we want to hear from you guys whether that is cool or not. So I've played a game that is not Breath of the Wild for PS4. Yeah, we established that last week, didn't we? It's called Flint Hook. Flint Hook. Flint Hook. Is this like a G.I. Joe spinoff? Oh, that'd be a cool G.I. Joe name or a cheat command. Well, Flint is a G.I. Joe. He never had a hook, though. No, but we have to think about this. Now we got some fan fiction to write. Oh, God. So, <laughs> not Flint- porn fan fiction, just fan fiction. <laughs> Flint Hook is from Flint the Hook. PS4. Yeah, tell me about Flint Hook, Jared. What's, what, what kind I, of game is it? If I had to it? cross it, uh, it's not Metroidvania. It is a shooter platform roguelike. It's okay. very. It brings up some contra to some degree. So, should we explain what a roguelike is before we get into our main topic where we talk about what roguelikes are? No, I think we'll just talk about if you know. So if you don't know the term, we'll get to that in a minute. So anyhow, the idea of this game is you are a space pirate called Flint Hook. So you have a hook shot. It's basically a hook shot. So is it Bionic Commando? It reminds me of Bionic Commando, much faster Bionic Commando. Oh, cool! If you've ever played the original Bionic Commando for NES, it's very slow and methodical, Mm -hmm. which is that's how it's designed. You have to be, you have to be. you have yeah, to consider what you do in that game. And, and if I remember, go. one of the big challenges in that game, strategy-wise, was sometimes you could hook to the wrong place and yeah. make the wrong choice or extend your, you know, in that case, you have an extending arm instead of a flint hook, which is a hook with a chain on it or a rope or whatever. Right. So tell us a little bit about flint hook. I mean, it, the premise sounds interesting. So you are a space pirate. Okay. And you're overtaking other space pirates you're this little cute dude that looks like a ghost with hands he has a he has a blaster pistol um the the hook shot and mm-hmm. he can slow down time with his chrono belt okay so we've got three basic mechanics then right. basic firing 
Level traversal using a hook shot, so you swing to get to other places. You can also places. wall jump, similar to uh, Super Meat Jump. Uh, Super Meat Jump. Super Meat Boy. <laughs> Super Meat Boy or Mega Man X. You can sort of wall jump. like Okay, that. so you can grab onto the wall and kind of jump so it's up. So it's a mix of combat and platforming. And, and then how does the time element come into it? The So you have a chrono belt, and essentially you can slow down time at any point in time. Okay. I said time four times there. Um and it has a recharge meter, so you can slow it down for maybe like. So it's two a limited seconds. resource. Yeah, that's good. But why would you slow down time? Is it to to make it so you can traverse an area you normally couldn't, or is it just kind Both. of your get so out of jail free in case you make no, a mistake? No, it is not. You need it, and it doesn't make the game any easier. So there are certain force fields that you can only go through when you slow down time. Okay. So that's the uh, level tres- traversal mechanic. It's also bullet hellish at some points. So, uh, especially in the boss fights, you need to kind of traverse through multiple tr- uh, projectiles okay. in order to shoot. Um, and again, it recharges over time. So, here's the thing I love about Flint Hook: it's set in space. You're a space pirate, but all the ships are made out of wood. Okay, so it's very stylistic. <laughs> very stylistic. Okay, cool. Um, How much does uh, Flint Hook cost? I think it's fifteen dollars. So it's your typical digital platformer. Yeah. It's it's great. It's very hard. Um, but the mechanics, the only thing I think it, I've read different things. I'm playing in a PS4. It came out for PS2 as well. But your shooting and your movement is tied to one stick. This, hmm. to me, would make sense as a dual stick yeah. shooter um, so that you could move one direction and aim independently. But after you get the hang of it, it kind of makes sense. But I okay. think so you're saying there's a little bit of a learning curve. On PC, I've read that your movement is tied to the keyboard and your shooting is tied to the mouse. I'm kind of curious to see how it plays for PC. Okay. Well, you've got a PC, which we didn't put on our tangents, but you now have a PC you can play these things on. I can play PC games. Yeah. And the first thing I did with my PC was download emulators to play Japanese PS1 games. So... That, you know, that I think the, you're really not embracing the spirit here. That should give the audience of who I am. Yeah. Um, no, Flint Hook's great. Great soundtrack. Great mechanics. If you haven't seen it, there's some videos out there of it. Um, I highly recommend it. Okay, great. So, so Sean. You, yeah. I've still not played The Witcher, but apparently it's coming to Netflix. So, I... You know, The Witcher is one of my favorite series. We've talked about this in the podcast. And the books are interesting in the fact that they start out as short stories. And they're kind of retellings of uh, fairy tales with a kind of gothic, dark... Did the books come before the games? Yes, absolutely. The games are based on the books. Okay. So the games are not based on... Well, they're based on the characters in the books. But the games and the books are completely separate in the fact that... The the original Polish writer, and I think we talked about this in our one of our earlier episodes, uh, he sold the rights to the video games and the characters for video games, but not for the books. And he's not writing new stories in these book series. He, he completed it. Um, and so what CD Projekt Red has been telling is kind of a, um, a sequel to the books. And what we're hearing about this uh, Witcher TV series is that it will be based on the books, not based on the video game. Um, because the original writer, Andre Sapkowski, is involved in the development of the TV series. So this is a situation where he's actually come out publicly once or twice and said that he doesn't like video games, he doesn't understand video games, he sold the rights to the video games because he didn't care about it, and then he gets no money from the video games. 
because of the popularity, we've now got the people who actually produced the cutscenes in the video games went back and said, hey, what if we made a whole TV series like this? And so there's some interesting questions about this, kind of like when we talked about Judge Dredd last week, uh, where we're at very early stages of what's been shared with everybody. Um, it appears as though it's going to follow or retell the timeline of the original books and novels, short stories in the novels. Um, it's the same setting, so if you're somebody who's played the Witcher games, you'll be familiar with it. It'll have the same set, um, same places, many of the same characters. I mean, I undoubtedly we're going to see Yennefer, we're going to see Dandelion, we're going to see, you know, all of those main characters, Ciri and and um, in the and Geralt, of course. Uh, but it could also be something completely different. We don't know yet. So is this Netflix's answer to Game of Thrones? So there's a lot of those kind of statements. Everything is everybody's Game of Thrones now, yeah. right? You know, or everybody's Westworld or, you know, everybody's Ash versus Evil. De- no, no, nobody's, nobody's doing, doing that. that. That's too bad. But, um, or everybody's American Gods is what we'll hear in the next six months. Pretty much, yeah. And uh, so we don't know a whole lot yet, except that Netflix is engaged. They're generating new stories are going to do we don't even know if it's going to be cg or live action uh this is a series i think would be actually beneficial if it was purely cg and we'll talk about this when we get to one of our later tangents but after playing one of the games we're going to talk about this week i don't see why we ever need actors in these types of films again i agree so next up on the tangent list uh i played another game Mm -hmm. called strafe yeah (sighs) So this this is another roguelike, which you'll find if you don't know what that means, we'll tell you. Um, really, when are you going to tell me? Soon, soon. Okay. When, when will then, then be, be now? now? <laughs> soon. So it's set. Well, the graphical style is they say the the marketing quake like the marketing game behind this has been this is the greatest game from 1996. So music and actually art style. It's funny if you watch the trailers or yeah. the, any of the yeah, the trailer actually. was even made like it came from 1996. So it's it's very quick. So like it's got a very fire, Far Cry Blood Dragon kind of feel to it. Then not not to that extreme like to the 80s. Okay. It's not like that for the 90s. Okay, it's it's not that um, crazy. But it's I'm trying to remember what it reminds me of. It sort of reminds me of a cross between uh, Binding of Isaac and Quake. Okay. Where you get power-ups in rooms over time, and it's just overwhelming enemies the entire time. It's very horde-based, where you're just, you're always shooting. You're always moving. So it's a run-and-gun shooter. Yeah, and it's very much like the Doom that came out in Doom previous, where it's, you gotta move. You gotta move, 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 move. Um, Now, I played it on PS4. It also came out for PS3 and Xbox, X-Bone. And PC. I said PC. Did I say PC? No, you didn't. Keep going. Anyhow, there's a lot of graphical, not graphical, performance issues in the PS4. And I'm not sure if they were intending it for the B for the PS4 Pro. Because they wanted to play like a 1996 but, game with lots of bugs? I don't know. <laughs> it, it's just, there's a lot of stutter. And when you go to quick restart, mm-hmm. that's slower than going to the continue and starting from the menus. So there's some optimization opportunities. So they, they say there's a patch in the works. Now, based on what I've played, it's very hard. Very hard. Uh, well, and that's going to be a trend as we talk through yeah. roguelike games. And and the characteristic here really is about random levels, right? So things just kind of regenerate. It's not the same level twice. Same yeah. enemies. Do the enemies, are, are they random the or are they are fixed? the same. 
Okay. So you have to learn how to prioritize certain enemies, the melee enemies, mm -hmm. compared to the composed. Oh my gosh, I can't speak today, Sean. Well, that's really inconvenient for a podcast. It really, really is. No, you have to <laughs> you have to prioritize based on the type of enemies. So you've got melee enemies, you've got long range enemies, and mm -hmm. these sort of hybrids that can really f you up. So it's really, um, th though they make comparisons to Quake. My memories of playing Quake, right, were that it was very methodical and slow. You you were planful about how you went through a, a yeah, level. Yeah, this is not. I would say it's Quake in terms of graphical style. A lot of, you know, verticality with mm -hmm. levels, but it's also Doom-like where you're not really jumping or jetpacking or anything like that. Okay, so there's not verticality. Right. Um, interesting. So um, so would you recommend it at this point? Or are you telling people to kind of, if you like this type of game, wait? I would wait to see if it goes on sale. Um, if anybody else has tried it, let us know. Um, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait to see if they down some of the uh, performance issues before I played again. It got really kind of annoying. It's really hard. Really hard. Almost too hard. Anyhow. Dead Cells. Dead Cells is another roguelike, and I put this one on the list. So this, this looked like Metroidvania? Roguelike. Roguelike. Yes. So it's your um, platformer kind of weapons platformer where you're, you change out your weapons and you get special weapons. and It's like playing Castlevania. Now, is, is, are there certain areas that are unlocked based on abilities or weapons? So there are. Uh, but the one thing I will say, this is just entered early access. So like we talked about, you know, last week when we talked about uh, Subnautica being not finished, uh, whereas Strafe is actually a commercial product at this point, yep. uh, Dead Cells just went on early access. And so all of the biomes and some of the capabilities are not enabled yet. Uh, this is very early in its development, but they're basically allowing us to have access to it. The gameplay is solid. I, I haven't had any problems with it. I'm playing on the PC. Um, it does randomly generate your encounters and, and the monsters and all of those things uh, whenever you die. And the whole concept behind this, which I find really awesome, and it's very similar to a game a lot of people probably played by now called Rogue Legacy, which is similar gameplay style. Uh, not similar visually. So this really does feel like a 16-bit D-make. Um, so it's got 16-bit graphics, and they're high resolution. They look pretty pretty. High bit. Yeah, they're exceeding. So sort of like Shovel Knight exceeded 8-bit right. and added certain elements that weren't possible. Yeah, it, it's very much like that. Um, but your progression is uh, persistent. So as you unlock things, as you enable special abilities, as you invest in your... Um, character, those things are unlocked no matter how many times you die. So you die, but the world isn't completely different when you restart. Well, the world is completely different. It's just your capabilities aren't. Okay. So there's um, still some progression, yes. even though you're sort of starting from scratch. And it recognizes that uh, this type of gameplay style tends to be very hard and people die a lot. So it doesn't penalize you for dying. It just says, okay, you know, you've made an incremental increase and we're going to let you keep that. And as you unlock special weapons and special abilities, you can kind of choose them when you restart your character. So, I'm, so what, what's the main takeaway? What is different about this game compared to other games in the vein? I mean, is it the combat? Is for it me, platforming? it's the um, just the fun combat. It's, it's 
The trailer of, you shared was very fast paced. It is very fast paced. It's it's Symphony of the Night. Okay, so for anybody who likes Castlevania Symphony of the Night, but faster. It's faster than that. Okay. Um, but it takes that level of strategy as well. Whereas Symphony of the Night was more of a platforming role playing game, you know, with Castlevania style combat. This is. It's almost like you're doing a, and we'll talk about again. I feel like we needed to spend time talking about roguelikes we'll get there. before some of this makes sense. But go back and listen to this after we tell you all this, yeah. this stuff about roguelikes. So let's move on. Yeah, would you recommend checking it out for early access? I do. I do. It's it's really affordable. So it's like twenty bucks normally, um, and that will get you the free or not free, but the full version once it comes out. Uh, it's worth investing in if you like those types of games. It is PC only at the moment, so it's on Steam, and um, I'm having a blast. I'm only a few hours in, and it just it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it absolutely like a, should be played with a controller. I was just going to ask that. Yeah, so. absolutely a controller game. Okay. Um, so a trailer dropped for Star Trek Discovery <sighs> on CB All Access. CBS All Access. Whatever their streaming platform where this is the only thing you can stream because they haven't marketed anything else about the streaming platform. So as far as we know it, it's the new Star Trek streaming platform for CBS along with a backlog of... Um, CSI Miami. I, I was going to say is it, <laughs> the CBS uh, all NCIS and CSI television. Yeah, I have no idea. So I watched the trailer. Um, I want to hear your thoughts first. What, why do you want to hear my thoughts first? I just want to see if they. Is it because I'm old mine? and I've been watching Star Trek since I was a kid? Yeah, hey, I've been watching Star Trek. Yeah, but when you were a kid, Next Generation was already out. Well, I didn't it started have... when I was a kid. Yeah, me too. I was in high school. Yeah, and I was just a tidbit earlier okay. in my life career. What does that even mean? I don't know. <laughs> okay, so here's my view on Star Trek Discovery. I don't know what universe this is supposed to be set in. I'm confused. I agree with you. It looked like every sci-fi show. It didn't. Nothing was remarkably Star Trek about it. Um, there's some visual elements that are, like the ship designs. Um, the the uh, uniforms, however. Don't match what we know. So if they said this was in the pre-new toss, ten years before toss, right? Well, it's ten years before toss, but which in in which timeline? In the original timeline. Hey, Paramount, supposedly. you've screwed everybody up by doing this whole J.J. Abrams thing and Kelvin timeline. The Kelvin timeline. Yeah, it's not in the Kelvin timeline from what we know. So, which means it doesn't match the uniforms we saw. From people wearing 10 years prior to Kirk, which actually, by the way, did take place in the old series. There were episodes that took place that far back in its timeline. And uniforms were like the, the cage, the pilot for Star Trek, which eventually became the, the menagerie or, or right. whatever that one episode was. The two-part one where Spock betrays everybody to save Captain Pike. We saw what those uniforms looked like. They looked like you know yellow high-collar sweaters. Right. So I think with that complaint specific, specifically, um, it's a balance, right? Because they could honestly... It would look make, really stupid today. They could make the bridge <laughs> look exactly how it looked in the original series. And but this is the problem with choosing to do prequels. Absolutely. Instead of going forward in time, instead of telling us something that's after what we know, they they update the visuals, they update the settings, but... 
they effectively put this whole jarring thing that makes me not want to suspend disbelief. Because there's no way we would go from having super sleek, sexy, iPod-like design, which is what we see. You know, there's still buttons, which is nice. There's still buttons on the keyboards, unlike the kind of Kelvin timeline where everything is a touchscreen. Um, but there's no way I can, in my head, justify what things look like in this trailer versus what they look like even in the old series. Which, admittedly, we're talking about completely different budgets. We're talking about completely cap- different capabilities. True, but I mean, I think they balanced that to a degree with Enterprise, right? Enterprise was updated visuals, but they also made it feel very prototypish. The yes. people were wary of transportation. Um, yeah, It felt like, hey, we're still working out this technology. But at this point... If you look at it in the timeline, post-Archer, pre-Kirk, right? Transporters would be in regular use. Uh, So there's, again, I know way too much about Star Trek, and I probably need to get a life. But then there wouldn't be this podcast. No. Uh, You know, phasers went out of style for a while. And, you know, you didn't have... So you had preliminary phasers in in the Enterprise era, meaning Archer, the NX era. And then you had laser weapons take over for a while in in the continuity because they talk about it in the old series Star Trek when they had the Romulan War and the first encounter with the Klingons. And that's that's the other thing that really grinds my gears here is the Klingons. I think those are the Klingons. They talk about Klingons. That's them. They they don't look like like Klingons. Which there is a story element that they have never really touched on about why the Klingons have changed. Well, they did talk about it. It was, it was explained in enterprise. Right. But they touched on it and we've never really seen that in the story. And this is supposedly the, like the last dying out part of the older Klingons. But we saw what the older Klingons look like. I don't know, man. Unless this is some offshoot where they're trying to genetically change themselves. There's a lot of ways they could actually rectify this problem. And we haven't seen it yet. And I'm trying to stay positive. But this series has had so many problems getting to the point that it's at now. They're saying it's coming in the fall. It'll be on DC. Or not DC. DC is actually launching their own all-access, kind of like CBS Of of course they are. Um, But CBS all-access, which you have to subscribe to, which it was going to be, when they initially talked about it, it was going to be Star Trek and Supergirl were the two kind of media things that you could get. And Supergirl went elsewhere. Yeah, still, yeah, Supergirl is a WB product, so it'll be on the WB one as well as the CW um, instead of being on CBS. They don't seem to have... Faith that Star Trek would work on television today on CBS. Because I think that's the problem. It's CBS. They've owned it, and they don't know how to make sci-fi anymore. They're all NCIS. And again, I don't know what the production company of this is. but It's Paramount. Paramount. But I just don't think they know how to market sci-fi. I don't think sci-fi can survive on a, on a, on a normal over-air so we joke about this being like the a new golden age of television for genre stuff, for everything, right? Um, I don't know about this series. The Visually, it's it's got movie quality special effects. But it looked pretty generic to me. Other than the ship design, nothing stood out as Star Trek. Like, yes, that's Star Trek. The character design, the uniforms, and even the Klingons, not Klingons, nothing was like... That's Star Hey, Trek. but you know the other thing they didn't do? They didn't change Vulcans. They look the same. 
Okay, pointy ears done. Um, <laughs> and bowl haircuts. Yeah. That's uh, Romulans. No, they have bowl haircuts for the Romulan or for the Vulcans too. Yeah. And I, and there's a hint in this trailer that the main character who's the first officer, not the captain, which is a new kind of dynamic, right? Um knows Spock's father. Spock's father is fairly young looking. Um it's obviously not Mark Leonard who's passed away many years ago, but uh, the idea is that this we get hints of this in the trailer that her character maybe grew up on Vulcan and tried to live on Vulcan as a Vulcan, but she was a human. And this is bef- we assume before Scott Spock is born and before Sarek meets Amanda. I, but I don't it's ten know. years. Before but it's only ten years, series. right? So Spock's already twenty years old. None I, of this I, makes I, none of it makes sense. <laughs> I, I would have rather just solo return to star trek after voyager and then the world's your oyster and do a do a star wars thing where you just negate all of the 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 secondary content mm-hmm. all the tie-in stuff the continuity they can't just, because that's what's been keeping star trek alive for the last 20 years i mean the same thing could have been said about star wars and it worked fine there i would argue it hasn't necessarily worked fine but well but I don't they haven't gotten to the point where they've disappointed people that drastically. And and the difference between Star Trek and Star Wars is foundationally the way people consume the media. Star Trek has always been fan focused. Star Wars was always marketing and merchandise focused. And toy yeah. And and Star Trek, I mean the last three movies. There are elements of all three of those movies that I love. Yeah, uh, but the great. overall they're good but they're not star trek they're not the core we of got star the trek. closest to having a star trek movie with beyond and unfortunately it still came back to the same plot point we had in the first two movies which is the enterprise or the the federation's bad yeah i'm tired of us hating ourselves that's not the optimistic future that you know roddenberry that's, that's, that's part of star trek it's the optimistic future yeah i don't know Anyhow, let's move on. Hey, I I don't know if you knew this. Um, I saw the best comic book movie in a while. Um, DC, surprisingly. Hmm. You're talking about the Judas Contract? Didn't we already talk about that? No, no, no. Um, it's called Injustice 2. Injustice? Isn't that a, a digital comic book series? No, no, no. It was. I played it. It was like an interactive movie I played on my PS4. Oh, uh, what, what kind of gameplay? It's like a fighting game. Fighting? Who plays fighting games? I don't know. <laughs> oh, interesting. How do you tell a story with a fighting game? Surprisingly well. Um, <laughs> yeah, so obviously we, we both know about Injustice and Injustice 2. We both played it, actually. Um, I have to absolutely... We were talking about this before we went on air. And we were talking about uh, how Injustice 2, in many ways, is the best DC animated movie either of us has seen in a long time. And even if you, and I posted this on my Facebook, I think, um, where if you just watch the cutscenes, because people have extracted the fighting elements out and you just watch the storyline through the cutscenes, it's still two hours and 30 minutes. Yeah. And it tells a cohesive story with character development. And chapters, and it switches yeah. points of view. And and my only problem, and I'm going to spoil the series for those who haven't played the first game, which is basically that the Joker ends up um, killing Lois Lane and, tr- well, tricking Superman into killing Lois Lane. He uses kryptonite to basically hypnotize Superman. Right. And he ends up killing his... Superman. Superman 
unwillingly sets off a bomb that destroys Metropolis and Lois Lane and his unborn son. Right. And after this, Superman goes off. He gets unhinged and he confronts the Joker. And kills the Joker. Yeah. Admittedly, (laughs) he's a little emotional. Yeah. And he vaporizes the Joker. Or does he punch out his heart? I don't remember. I I think he punches through him. Pretty violent. But Batman comes and says, Clark, you cannot do this. And this is this is an alternate universe, Right. right? But from that, the universe kind of evolves. The symbol of hope, Superman moves to more of a he becomes a dictator. He basically, it's sort of like Minority Report, where they want to stop crime before it happens. Well, and the interesting thing is that at first I thought this was going to pre- be a prequel because there were things where they talked about, you know, some of those story elements. And there are a few parts that retell things that we didn't see in the original game. Right. But this is really a sequel. So Batman and some alternate universe Batman and, and Justice League guys end up in the Injustice universe, and that's the whole plot is that they help that universe's Batman kick what's called the regime which is superman's closest allies out of power and that includes you know a green lantern who's become a member of the sinestro coin or so sinestro core yellow lantern he's a yellow lantern and it's hal jordan you've got cyborg who is completely in support of superman you got wonder woman who is basically the queen and really part of the reason that clark went the direction he went yes she really kind of encouraged that like I was telling my wife, Wonder Woman in the Injustice games isn't really a likable character. She's not. And even in Injustice 2, you're, I think you're supposed to like her more. But no, she's still completely unlikable. Right. And and when you start this game, and what I would say is Injustice 2 is really the story of Supergirl. Yeah, and it told a really good story about her. And the way they kind of do it is, again, she comes to Earth after Clark does, Kal-El. But she comes after all this stuff has transpired with the Joker and Superman kind of. Getting and she changed. was found and kind of sheltered by the expatriates of the Justice League, which is Wonder Woman, who obviously is not an American citizen, doesn't live in Metropolis or or Gotham, um, goes back. Well, she doesn't go to Themyscira because she's actually seen as a criminal by them, too. Uh, she goes and she's living in uh, the pseudo-Egyptian country that's Kondok. run by... Yeah, Kondok, which is run by Black Adam, who, anybody who knows Black Adam, absolute villain through and through. No question. Um, And so they actually find Kara and raise her, quote-unquote, teach her how to use her powers and, and, and kind of cultivate her. And they fill her head with the idea that Batman actually is a bad person and all of the people with Batman... An imprisoned Superman, this beacon of hope and... Yeah, everything yeah. in the world is because of Batman. Anyhow, I don't. We don't want to spoil everything about it. But no, I think. But that's the first twenty minutes of the yeah, storyline. Yeah, yeah. But again, comp- even the first Injustice was just as good, and I think they continued the story. The only thing I would have liked to see was the, the last conversation between Bruce and Clark was really good. But I would have liked to see something happen else with Clark. So I, I think here's my problem towards the third game. I mean, they're obviously going to make, and it. I don't want to spoil the game because you know, I'm, uh, I, the story is really worth experiencing. Uh, I will tell you that the redemption you kind of hope co- will come doesn't come in this story. Yeah. And that disappointed me. Yep. That's exactly where I was coming from. And 
This game answered the truest question asked to anybody. If you can't be yourself, be Batman. Because oh. <laughs> it gives you an option a couple times to choose characters, yes. and especially at the end. And that's a new dynamic between, here. You have to choose between Superman and Batman, but when my wife and I, it's like, it's Batman. You always choose Batman. How do you not choose Batman? So Well, and it's it's not just Batman you get to choose from. So there are a lot of team fights where in the storyline, uh, the main character for a chapter will be with two or three other people. Like, there's a scene in the prison where Superman's being held during one of the pivotal scenes, and, you know, um, Supergirl and Black Adam and Wonder Woman are break- coming in to break out Superman and and his accomplice who accomplices who are trapped in this prison. And you get the choice of playing either Firestorm or Blue Beetle. And it is different based on which one you choose. Which is interesting. So it gives you branching storylines that you could actually replay and make different choices. And then you go into the major gameplay. and, and Because I've seen the difference at the end. If you choose to be Superman or Batman in the end fights. I was going to say, that's the only branching part. You don't branch if you choose Firestorm or Blue Beetle. It just the dialogue changes. The overall story is the same. Well, agreed. But, I mean, it does have a difference. Yeah. And, and who you face is a little bit different. Right. Um, otherwise that's just the storyline. So the other thing about injustice Two, it's got this concept of a gameplay called the multiverse, which allows you to fight other people playing the same characters. And then it adds a gear system on top of that. So as you play, you'll unlock points. Those points can be used to buy items like armor. And, and there's been a lot of you know, they've shown off the armor system in the trailers, but actually getting to play with the armor system is kind of fun because you can customize it and you can customize your build for your game style and, and your favorite fighter and you level them up. And you know, there's tons of alternate costumes, which is great. I bought the Ultimate Edition, so I've got all of the unlocks that are available for costumes except for Darkseid. Darkseid was a pre-order bonus. But if you want him and you didn't pre-order, six dollars. He's six dollars, and I'm not willing to pay six dollars at this point. Yeah, I only played the single player. I haven't even gone into the multiverse, but um, it's a really competent fighting game. And even if you're not a huge fighting game person, um, if you're a DC fan, again, I think Marvel doesn't know what they're doing with the video game side of things. They don't. I don't know really... Marvel heroes. We could talk about. I enjoy it. Let's talk about it later. But yeah, I mean. We have the Arkham series, love them or hate them. They're all really good, competent games that understand the characters and you know yes. the, the story building. The and they're internally building. consistent from a story perspective. And then the two Injustice games. I mean, I think DC really has done a great job with their sort of video game marketing. No, whereas Marvel is largely flailing. Yeah. You know, so. you've got Marvel Heroes Omega, which is effectively Diablo microtransaction game. And then you've got the Avengers project coming from Square Enix sometime in the next two well, years. You've got Spider-Man coming out. Spider-Man which... is a Sony game, not really a Marvel game. Eh. Because it's not set in the Marvel Universe. Right. I don't, I don't care about it being set. I mean, I like what Injustice did. I like what the Arkham series did. They're their own self-contained universes. Yes. Where they can have that consistency. They can also bring all of the best elements from all these characters. Like, when you play Injustice... I mean, when you see each of those characters the first time, there's a lot of fan service. The characters are themselves. 
and I don't know. I just I really like what DC does. On the so video game side. since this has kind of turned into a mini review, let me turn and talk about some of the negatives. First off, if you are somebody who is not a fighting game diehard, and and I got chastised for saying this on Facebook from a friend of mine, but the tutorials are a little unforgiving. Yeah, uh, the teaching you the moves. The tutorial, the way that it organizes what you're learning doesn't make sense because it throws in pretty much some very advanced moves about 70% of the way. Advanced moves that you need to worry about all the other stuff before you start worrying about these yes. moves and throwing them into your game. And you can't skip them. And you can't skip them to learn the clash system, which is pretty easy to pull off and very instrumental to what makes injustice. And I don't know about you, but what I've noticed is every time I'm fighting the computer after I pull a super move, which drains your capability, your resources, they almost always initiate a clash. So I have nothing to bid. Exactly. Which it's, it's the whole risk reward thing. It makes yeah. sense. I love it. Yeah. And, they can, um, and then the AI is good about exploiting yeah, that. Exactly. Uh, the other thing is, so and and what we found out, both of us kind of talked in, there's an option that's supposed to make it easier for you, which is, um, I forget what the exact it's option. It's called release check. Release it's check. It's supposed which means, to check when you release buttons. So which means a button press counts when you hold a button down and let it go. It counts as a button press. Which, again, is very advanced for fighting games. I consider myself a mediocre fighting game fan. Sean, I would say, is pretty beginner. But, again, that's a really advanced thing to worry about with fighting games. And I think that's what throws a lot of people off from fighting games. Yeah. And the great thing about um, what NetherRealm has done is the Mortal Kombat's, the Injustices, are very approachable fighting games for, for anybody. people to jump in yeah. and have fun and start to learn the mechanics. Yeah, it's, it's not, not Street Fighter 4. They're very accessible. It's not Marvel versus Capcom. No. You know, which require completely different strategies, and you learn a move set, and you memorize a player and a character, right. and and actually they give you the best example by giving you an entertaining storyline that gives you exposure to all the characters on both sides. Right. Um, it, it's interesting, especially because you've still got your traditional fighting game mechanics, like who's a juggler, who's you know close Fast. combat, like Firestorm. I had the hardest time because he's very slow. Um, like his quick cyborg is too. Is, well, cyborg that makes a little more sense, a little bit beefier. But Firestorm was expecting to be a, somewhere like a mid range, and he was a little slower. Yeah. Anyhow, um, it's hard to tell what this game does differently than Injustice, other than more characters in the core story. combat. Yeah, and I, I think story, the biggest difference is going to be the armor system. The armor system that's I mean, going to be the differentiator. That, you know, it's sort of if it's not broke, don't fix it. Oh, the other thing that it really caught me that I thought was cool, it has built-in tournament a tournament capability. Mm-hmm. So you can do local co-op tournaments, and it'll do the ladders for you and everything. And that is something every fighting game should have at this point. It should have built-in. Yeah, and, and we're I think we've seen it in Street Fighter. Street Fighter has some capability to do that, but this also has it. And I'm like, that is awesome. So we can pull everybody over, do a round-robin tournament, have fun just kind of beating each other up. And and I know that a lot of the fighting games have moved away from couch fighting games, right? Where it's two guys at a console and move to the online play where you worry about lag and network connection and all of that. Nothing replaces the fun of having two friends just going at it in a fighting game and with mixed levels of capability. Um, I still have the fondest memories of playing Soul Calibur 2. Yeah, and I, I mean, I've played games like Marvel vs. Capcom, which I'm pretty competent at. 
not high level. I'm not an expert at fighting games. But then I've played people like your son who've never played the game before and they've kicked my ass because they're <laughs> button mashing. Yes. Um, yeah. So it still provides a different challenge of how you've got to work around a button masher. Well, kind of- and the interesting thing about that example is today I think you'd find him a very different opponent. Because his way of approaching games has become he will find a character he really likes and learn every one of their moves. And that's great. I mean, there's two ways to play fighting games. I mean, you either try to broaden your scope and get good at everybody to a certain level, or you you home in on one and you learn everything you can do with them. Anyhow, Injustice 2 is out. Highly recommended. Recommended. um, And and again, if you don't want to buy it, and you want to see one of the best DC movies that have come out in years, yeah, go watch it on, on YouTube. YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Sean, last tangent. Yes. What and... is Everspace? So I added Everspace on here because it comes out this coming week. Um, and it's a game that's actually on the Xbox One as well, in early access, as well as on Steam right now. So it's a PC and, a, and a Xbox game. Basically, the, the way I sum it up is imagine a roguelike Wing Commander game. Where you start out as a guy in a starfighter flying in a sector and you get a randomly assigned mission and there's we're not worried about economy. or You do pickups and things like that when you blow enemies up. But random enemies, random star systems and that are gen- generated on the fly. And the goal is that you're supposed to traverse through the space sector and doing all of these things on the way. So for me, and, and here's the other thing, it's... It's a gorgeous space game. It does not look like somebody put a bunch of hexagons of rocks in space. This looks like a grade A space combat game. And it's roguelike. So you start with a basic ship. You can buy upgrades. Again, there's persistence. So you're expected to die. It's hard. But you're not penalized too badly for it. And you get to maintain your capabilities as you move to the next one. So I wanted to kind of wrap up our tangents with that just to make sure everybody knows that um, there, as we roll into our main topic this week, we'll talk a bit more about this, but just about any game out there where you like playing it, there's probably a version that has some randomness to it that classifies as a roguelike or a roguelite game. And for me, I've been having a real Wing Commander itch the last few months. I wanted to play something like that or X-Wing. Instead of going back and playing those games, because not all of them have aged very well, this kind of did that for me. So I'm recommending it. All right. So, Sean. Yeah. This week's main topic are roguelites so never would have guessed i know we've talked about it 17 times so i think the best (laughs) person to explain what is a roguelike and at least the origins sure of roguelikes would be you because i'm old i didn't say that so the the term roguelike or rogue comes from a game called rogue okay which was an old mainframe game um actually one of the earliest multiplayer games, or it's a single player, but you could also play it as a multiplayer game with um, Space War and those types of games where you had random settings and random fights. Uh, But it was based on this idea that your character was going to traverse this dungeon to go to the bottom of the dungeon and find 
um, this portal that you have to close. And it was called Rogue. And visually, not an impressive game, right? This was the days of text terminals, green screens. And I miss those games. you would have monsters and items and, and all of these things represented by letters and uh, space characters and, you know, shading. And, uh, and it was a randomly procedurally generated dungeon in the truest sense in that it would randomly generate pathways. And sometimes dungeons would generate without a way out unless you found a secret door and you could get stymied in your progress if you're going down through the levels. And it was your traditional kind of D&D game, right? A fantasy adventure game where you had potions and swords and magic armor and spells and weapons and all of that. And uh, Rogue was pretty popular amongst early game programmers and mainframe guys. You know, you could run it on old System 5 Unix. There was a version of Rogue that ran on that. Um, and eventually it got updated into some... There's two variants that I talk about in my past that I played a lot of. Because this is so old that, you know, Rogue was old by the time I started playing it. Um, there's Moria and NetHack. And again, Moria kind of is the Tolkien-ish name. It's based on the concept of, you know, diving into the minds of Moria and, and encountering things and recovering objects to get to the end. Um... And the whole concept, what really caught fire here, is that nobody actually programmed each of those levels. And each time you played it, it was completely different. The most modern example of Rogue most people know is Diablo, the original Diablo. Um, not Diablo 3, because Diablo 3 didn't change its layout. It changed the placement of things, but the actual layout of Diablo, when you go into the cathedral, is completely randomized every time. And it was tile-based, which is kind of similar to what they did with the, the NetHack slash Rogue. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about the difference between how you create these titles. But the idea really is that each time the adventure was different. And you could play it over and over and over again and never play the same and game And you twice. don't know what's behind the next corner. You don't know what equipment you're going to get. You don't. There's no, hey, this item is always here in this one spot. Yeah. This is how you win. That may not be there next time. Well, the idea of a clue book or a guidebook for these types of games would focus on here's the variables that could result in what you find right. and what they mean. Right. But it wouldn't be one where I have a book of maps, right? Because the maps are generated. The monsters are – the monsters' statistics and characteristics are set. Right, but then there are variants. Like Diablo brought in the the concept – Of I mean, elite. Of elite or variant. Mm -hmm. um, hey, these ones are poison. Have fun. Um, yeah, and made them bright green. Exactly. Um, so I think we're seeing a lot more roguelike happen, at least on the indie side of things these days. We're not seeing really mm -hmm. any AAA games being roguelike. Um, no, because I think most there's the risk reward again. You talk about with gameplay is also the same for a publisher, which is there's too much randomness and it's not a hand controlled kind of sculpted, curated experience. For a AAA game, you expect that. Um, we've seen actual, historically, AAA games do that. Uh, a big one that most people probably have heard of, even if they haven't played it, is Daggerfall, which is an Elder Scrolls game. So before Morrowind, there was Daggerfall, and it used randomly generated dungeons. So you would find a dungeon location on the map, 
and then you could go into it and it would be completely different if it was not one of the theme dungeons. So the set dungeons were curated. So if you went for a quest to go do something, that was curated. Somebody built that dungeon. But if you went to the random tomb of Bob that you found out in Hammerfell, it, it would go in and it would randomly generate it. And sometimes, and this is where the risk comes in, sometimes a player could effectively get trapped. Yeah, and I think that still happens today with some of these roguelikes. Is it's not so much trap like they've worked that out. There's yeah. not really a, a game stopping bug, but that changes the level of difficulty. Sometimes, sometimes it can spawn you in you know a new environment in the next room or area you go into. There's a really high leveled enemy there. Good luck because it's random, right. and and there's generally it's math. Right. So that's one of the nice things about this, I think, is it gives you. I was told there'd be no math. Well, no, this is one of those times when I actually want there to be math. Um, I actually <laughs> think math is a good thing here because it, we have a number of different ways to make this. The one game I own, if I only had to have one game with me and I was going to go somewhere where I'd never have access to another game, I want a roguelike. Because I could continue to play it over and over and over again, regardless of how good I get at it, I'm still going to face new challenges the next time I play it. Right, and I think the thing that roguelikes emphasize is skill. Yes. It's not going to be an item, it's not going to be you knowing where things are that's going to make you succeed. It is literally how well you adapt to situations and know the mechanics of the game. Well, and that leads into something we kind of alluded to in our tangents difficulty so roguelike games are notoriously difficult games and we're not talking dark souls 3 level of insanity or dark souls level of insanity as far as difficulty but there's always the chance when you're dealing with random numbers that you may find yourself in a situation that you have absolutely no way to get out of you can't fight the enemy because he's immune to whatever you have or you haven't run across the right item or you don't have the key because the key generated in the wrong place. Now, again, like you said, as people have gotten better at developing these games over the years, there's less and less chance that I'm going to put the red door that requires the crimson key in without leaving the crimson key somewhere where you can find it. Right. Um, but that doesn't mean that I won't encounter an enemy that's immune to regular weapons before I find my first magic weapon. As long as there's a chance to find that, then... So I want to go back to Flint Hook, which we talked about at the beginning of the, the podcast. Sure. So in this, the roguelike elements are... It's like you mentioned with that other game, I already forgot, um, where you get to retain certain permanent upgrades. Oh, so yeah, Dead Cells. Dead Cells. Actually, it's also true of Everspace. Um, but there are modifiers you get in the game... There are certain shops that are randomly shown where you could buy upgrades that last until your playthrough. And the way that Flint Hook is structured is you've got to board and invade three ships. Mm -hmm. So at the beginning of each level, if you want to say that, is you're given a choice of three ships to go. And the the ships will say, like, well, this one has a labyrinth. This one has a really a, called a danger room, so to speak. Kind of tells you what elements you can expect in the game. Oh, this okay. one's a really big one. Um, you have to do that three times before you can fight the boss of that progression. So 
let's talk about the mechanics of how you do that a little bit. And one of the things, there, there's two primary ways that roguelikes kind of adapt themselves into other game genres. Uh, one of them is called procedural generation, which is completely purely random with the the ability to just generate settings, statistics, what have you. Um, Diablo does it with weapons, right? So you have um, the name of a weapon indicates certain qualities of the weapon, and then there's the type of weapon. And, and in earlier versions, Diablo 2, Diablo 1, it was like Bob's Axe of the Bear. Well, if it's of the bear, you know that it's a strength weapon, you know, and... and if it's Bob's, then it probably does poison damage, you know. So it was a, a prefix and a suffix about the weapon, and that's how it generated. On top of what they used both methods that I'm going to talk about here. So you have procedural, which is random numbers on tables and generating things, um, or generating something on the fly that isn't pre-established, and then you have something called tile-based generation. Which that kind of expands now to the world of 3D games. I mean, it's a little more than tile generation. But essentially what you're talking about is a room would be shaped the same way. A room will always have these elements. So that you're kind of getting some similarities of how things are generated. But it's certain parts are handcrafted. Yes. But then amalgamated together to make that sort of... To make a unique setting. Right. So the two most recent games I can give you an example. A purely procedural game is No Man's Sky. It's all math. They used math to make a world. Multiple worlds. Almost like a universe of worlds. Yeah, and and you see a little bit of that in games like Terraria and Starbound. You see it absolutely in Minecraft. Minecraft, yeah. Um, when you talk about tile-based generation, though, I'm thinking Splunky is a better fit for that. Splunky, or... Flinthook, um, what else do we have on our list? Binding of Isaac. Well, Binding of Isaac is absolutely tile-based. Yeah. Um, uh, if you were to do, like, a random Zelda, it would be a tile-based game. Like, traditional Zelda, not modern 3D Zelda. Um, a bunch of other games that are tile-based, like Don't Starve is a tile-based game. Um, and, and then the other thing I'm gonna, I don't think we hit on this, but just because something is called a roguelike doesn't mean they all play the same. No, it's an element. They're taking, like, John's... Sean, John, 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 um, <laughs> like oh, Sean said is it's taking, it's a lot of genre mixing at this point. Yeah. You're taking something like we mentioned the binding of Isaac, the binding of Isaac is somewhat structured like the origin, original legend of Zelda dungeon sort of layout. Mm -hmm. Now how you fight is a little bit different. Um, but sort of you go into a room that takes up the screen and there are enemies and there are multiple branching paths and you don't know what's in the next room. Um, and another one that we don't have on our list um, that I actually enjoy is called Dungeon of the Endless, which is a combination of kind of a tower defense resource-based um, strategy game and your traditional Zelda-style combat game. Right. You know, in, in each room, every time you open the door, there's some math being done on the back end to generate. Or maybe it's generated when the level's generated. But there's there's something variable about each experience, and that changes things. Um, so, I mean, something you mentioned, like, with Everspace is Wing Commander. Um, Diablo is sort of your dungeon crawler. Um, and then, like, Flint Hook or Strafe. I mean, they're taking first-person shooters and... 
you know, sort of platformer shooters mm -hmm. and evolving them. Now, why do a roguelike in 2017? So I think roguelikes, there's a lot of answers to that, but my view is that we now have the computing power and the resources to really make involving, interesting game settings using a collection of Lego pieces. That's effectively what a roguelike is. I've got a bucket full of parts. I'm going to dump them, and they're all going to assemble. And then the next time I do it, they're going to assemble differently. Um, replayability. Replayability is, is a huge reason. And I can pay $15 and play a game forever. Right. right? And this isn't a new concept. This is, yeah, like we said, we've been playing since Rogue. Rogue was different every single time. Um, there have actually been Dungeons & Dragons roguelike called Dungeon Hack which was based on the old Eye of the Beholder tile-based game where you'd walk through a dungeon. And in um, Dungeon Hack, which is available on GOG, it's like 10 bucks or something like that. Um, it's an older game, but you have one character and you're just trying to get through the dungeon and it's completely random. You can one The coolest thing about roguelikes, most of them give you some control over the randomness. So you can tailor the game to what you like. So in the case of Dungeon Hack and in a lot of the kind of dungeon-ish games where you have that agency, you can tailor, do I want a lot of doors? Do I want you know to be a big dungeon or a small dungeon? How, how frequent do monsters show up? How frequently do I run into items? You know, many of them give you those kind of wheels and knobs to play with. And then you can generate a completely new experience that... that you will enjoy. You can tailor it. Um, we haven't seen a whole lot of that in the more modern games. So things like Binding of Isaac, you can't really tweak the controls. It just generates the rooms. Um, Darkest Dungeon, another one where you don't really tweak anything, but it generates its dungeon layouts using a roguelike function. Flint Hook. Flint Hook, yes. Flint Hook allows that what you're talking that sort of customization you've got certain slots that you get over time and you can fill those slots with cards that you get that increase your attack power or that chrono belt that we mentioned you can add more time to that yep or if you get if you're really proficient at a game and you get through a room without getting damaged then you get additional gold so there's certain elements if you know how you're going to play you can kind of stack it to help you out and there's one game type we haven't really talked much about that I think is an interesting iteration of a roguelike, which is FTL, Faster Than Light, which kind of hit the scene about two years ago, two and a half years ago, and it made a huge splash. Because visually, it's not that interesting, right? It's, it's kind of low-res, low-tech on the visuals. But the concept behind the game is that you start out as this Federation starship trying to escape after you're running away from the Empire, right? And they're chasing you, and you have these encounters as you have to progress through this ladder of star systems. And each star system, each encounter is randomly generated. And how you attack and how you do upgrades and all of that. Um, that is a, probably one of the first big roguelikes that kind of broke out of the indie scene. And we've seen it in a lot of other things. We've already mentioned a number of them. There's one other that I don't think I've talked to you about, but I've been interested in. I haven't bought it yet. It's called Crawl. Have you ever heard of it? Yeah. What so the, it? the concept behind Crawl is your traditional dungeon crawler, except 
you play with friends. You, as the first player, is an adventurer adventuring through a dungeon, and everybody else you're playing with play the monsters. <laughs> and their goal is to kill you so they can come back to life to become an adventurer. That does sound fun. And I'm like, this is awesome. Because, again, it's got those roguelike elements where the monsters that they play as your adversaries, your friends, obviously, um, and the layout of the dungeon are randomized each time you play it. That's great that you mentioned that multiplayer and roguelike, and I just remembered um, Titanfall. Yes. Or not Titanfall, Towerfall. Towerfall. Titanfall was a roguelike, but only in the distribution of gear and monsters. Right, the procedurally generated... So, uh, but the uh, maps were fixed. Towerfall is not a game we've mentioned too many times on the show, but it's uh, it's one of your favorites. Oh my gosh, it is an absolute blast to play for multiplayer. Um, but they added in the last update for the game, one of the level maps is generated random every time. Yeah. So they've added that. I was, I was just trying to think. Has is has, it based on templates or how does it how does it do it? It's it's just different tiles and different. So layouts. it just randomly assigns the tiles. Is it yeah. possible to get a bad layout? I I haven't seen it, and it's okay, great so. if you've played that game so many times that you're kind of running dry of the levels. It's a good. Well, we don't know what we're getting this time. Are there any other multiplayer games that you can think of? So that... don't starve is multiplayer. Okay. Uh, don't starve uh, together, and they, it does that. Um, there, I mean, Diablo is multiplayer. <laughs> Diablo so, 2? Yeah, Diablo. So I was thinking, um, I put on our list of other possibilities. Yeah. I, I just wanted to brainstorm and, th- and, and, and see gee, if you could think of any. Let's, let's look at the two options you put on your brainstorm. If you well, look at the show notes. Oh my gosh. So I have to do it. No, I know. Um, one I mentioned was, could you imagine a Mega Man that was sort of roguelike? You're platforming and the weapons. So let's let's see so your end bosses. And your end bosses are procedurally generated. You run up against fire concrete, man, and the weapon is <laughs> procedurally generated. So and then- where I think that would fall apart with the Mega Man specifically is that the order in which you acquire weapons, no, yeah, to combat certain enemies. So this was always the strategy, right? When I was playing Mega Man when I was a kid. You know, I always go for Cutman first because he had the best weapon that could take out everybody really quickly. Um, and then you go to Fireman or whoever next. Right. And and so there was an order in which you had to attack the enemies to, to have the most optimal skills to fight them. Well, let's say that you can save your seed, so to speak. You could play mm-hmm. that configuration of characters and the math would program it in a way that your weaknesses are actually programmed in there. So you could go back and play that variation of the game if you wanted to. Sounds like you need to start a Kickstarter. I, I know. It's, I just <laughs> My mind kind of exploded with that. The other thing I was thinking of was Mario, like 2D-based oh, Mario. like a basic jumper. But then I was thinking, we kind of got that with Super Mario Maker. We and do. And it ended up being terrible because we had to play all these sort of randomly, not so randomly, generated levels. And part of what makes Mario successful is that the levels are very handcrafted and the secrets are kind of... So you bring up a great point there, which is we have the capability to do these things, yeah. should we? Exactly. You know, we can create life, but should we? Uh, no, it's Mario or a basic platform or even a Sonic game. I think most of the last few Sonic games were randomly generated with no thought. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we've, we've seen where that doesn't really work out in, in some platform spaces. Uh, but we do have platformers. I mean, Spelunky is a randomly generated map. Yep. It, it's not your traditional horizontal platformer, 
but you've got elements of that and you do have specific weapons and specific enemies you have to do to clear a level um this is again something that's been utilized to in many ways shortcut handheld game design in the past and i think we're now starting to get to the point where the math involved with the generation is good enough well i don't i don't want to put rules around the random generation i don't want to shortchange it that it's to get around handcrafted i feel like there's just a much just as much work required to sort of do that tile based i think there's more i think yeah because you have to have rules about which tiles can exist which next to which and there has to be enough variety so you have to generate more content Right, So knowing that there's four worlds in a Sonic game and they have these visual styles and then making sure in handcrafting a level or in Mario, you know, the same thing versus uh, procedurally or tile-based generated where I've got an entire library of things that I can slap together. We've seen how ridiculous some of the results of No Man's Sky can be. Yep. Right? Because they vary the size. They slap certain parts on things that shouldn't be together. Like giant insect heads on mammalian bodies with you know lizard tails and you're like that is just the most bizarre creature i've ever seen but every once in a while that formula creates pure gold yeah and you're looking at this creature and you're going that is awesome i mean it just comes together and you look at a a monster or an alien that you plausibly believe could exist however that's statistically low in the number of things that you encounter in procedural games. Right. And you need that. You need the randomness. So the work involved in a procedural game is huge because you have to identify what pieces can be random. You have to establish a huge library of parts that are interchangeable. You have to make sure in the 3D gaming world, especially, that those components, which are rendered in 3D, are snapped to the right parts of the grid on a model so they don't look completely bizarre and they look the way we would expect something to look. So generating enough things that are not just color variants or texture variants, but actually are unique is a huge undertaking. And if you, and I know we've talked at no man's sky a lot actually in this conversation, but what they accomplished with the size of the team that they had, even though they missed the mark uh, their systems of generation, they they had thousands of parts that they were able to randomly assemble. The problem was that with random generation, you often end up with a bunch of things that are that appear samey. Um, they are completely unique from a generation perspective, but because you only have ten thousand parts, if you roll the dice ten thousand times, a certain percentage of those are going to look similar because they're completely random. Right. What would be more interesting is a procedural evolution system where you have the ability to kind of understand relationships between random items or random settings. The idea that maybe the next iteration of something like No Man's Sky could create a consistent biome where the monsters are based on a a randomized starting template but evolve logically based on things like environment. Or, you know, the, the, if it's a radiation planet, it has certain characteristics. Well, and You're talking no, seriously complex math. No, with No Man's Sky specifically, I mean, that's not the problem with that game. The problem is developing... Gameplay? Gameplay yeah. on top of that. 
So it's a matter of finding that mix and match of using procedural generation to kind of build a world or build elements of the world that are different, that can change up the gameplay, that can but having up, interesting but things to do have that core gameplay. Yeah. And that's why I think all the roguelikes we've mentioned is the Binding of Isaac, Rogue Legacy, Diablo, Splunky, Flint Hook is the core gameplay is fun to do it over and over is fun. And it's having that challenge yep. that the world puts in your face and says, well, get from a g- game design perspective, what they call that is the core loop. Right. Right. What am I constantly doing? You know, how am I progressing? And, and what are the things I do in repetition? And you mentioned it last week when we were talking about Subnautica, which is not a roguelike. It's a survival game, but it, if you don't have fun doing what you do, in that game, you're not going to continue to play it to see the neat stuff that the the engine can crank out. Right. Um, and and I would I would agree with you. In in the case of like Rogue Legacy, which is a Metroidvania, you know, platformer, little we talked about Dead Cells, which is similar, um, but Rogue Legacy slower. Right. It's more methodical. Um, and in, your character starts off with random characteristics. So like you could have a female with dwarfism who's also colorblind and it affects the gameplay and it's fun, right? And it does it in a way that uh, everybody can kind of laugh at and enjoy and it changes the way the game plays. If your character doesn't have 3D vision, when you turn left and right, they do this neat visual trick, but it does change the way you play the game. Um, Dead Cells has that with skill systems. Uh, Darkest Dungeons has that with a progression system for your characters. Um, again, don't starve. You know, what items do you start with and what do you find? These are all the kind of random elements that evolve. So, I don't know. It, it's it's interesting to see the explosion of roguelike games, that it's a genre, but it's not really a genre. It's like a, a variant. And it in itself is a variant upon what it's doing. Because it, it, what we've done is we've taken these mathematical systems and applied them to core gameplay yeah so we know what mario plays like we know what zelda plays like binding and binding of isaac is a roguelike procedural process applied or it's tile-based in that context but it's a it's a roguelike process applied to a top-down action game yeah um it's just another way of building a game. And in some ways, you know, you'd think, well, it's faster, it's more interesting, more unique. Like you said, the, the player then has to focus on their own strategy, mastering the capability of the character rather than mastering the environment around them. In some way, these games kind of tell how well you're doing is score-based or, you know, how yeah, far you get or a number of enemies you've killed or a number, you know. Statistics are almost always a factor in these games. Yeah. Where you're talking about, you know, like you said, a kill count or number of hours or steps or because the the goal isn't to beat the game. The goal is to uh, just have fun. Down well was another one we didn't mention here, too. Um, where you're going down a well. It's a platformer where you're just you have gun boots and you're mm-hmm. trying to go down the well. Different every time. Very fast gameplay. But again the the end goal isn't there it's to see how good you can get and sort of so if you were to talk about roguelikes as a genre is that a, an accurate thing i mean or... i don't think so i think you you basically have to explain the genre of or relate it to a genre or a game and then just say hey 
every time's different. The future is unknown. We don't know what we're getting next time. And that's part of the fun, just like real life. So then here's my thought. We see this label applied to a lot of different games. And when you look at things like a Steam... Yeah, I, I was going to say, everything on Steam's a roguelike now, so... Well, and I made that joke in the, <laughs> in the show notes. And we actually put a link to... If you were going to Steam and you do a, a search for the tag roguelike, you will get hundreds of games, most of which have nothing to do with each other. And so if you want to look for a quote-unquote roguelike, what I would really recommend is find... Do that search, right? And then narrow it by another tag. So you want a roguelike... Action, platformer, platformer, dungeon crawler. Yeah. And so it's not your primary classification. What it means is I want this game to have some longevity. You know, another roguelike I didn't even mention that is one of my favorite games of all time is a derivative of Diablo called Torchlight. Oh, Torchlight. Yeah. Torchlight 2 is a pure random procedurally generated... The maps are different every time. Torchlight 1, same maps, different monsters, placements, and items. So, again, Torchlight, great alternative. Torchlight 2, I thought, was better than Diablo 3 when it came out. Not still better than Diablo 3, in my opinion, but it's a different type of game. And well worth the time and investment. Yeah. So, before we kind of wrap up this topic, um, we've talked a lot about our favorites Right. So what I want to hear from our listeners is now that we've kind of explained the the value proposition of a roguelike and why it's kind of not its own thing, why it doesn't stand on its own. I'd love to hear what your favorite roguelikes are. And maybe we can talk in a future episode about kind of the the favorite games we've gotten from you guys. Um, This is an opportunity, again, for you to be interactive with us. We, we want this to be as conversational. And I'm sure we've missed something. Well, I, there are so many. Yeah. And, and there's so many good ones that I'm sure there's something we've missed. I'm sure there's a, um, a pure RTS strategy game out there that's a roguelike that I haven't even discovered. And I mean, I'd be interested in, in kind of hearing what have your experiences been and is there a game that we should really take some time and take a look at? Yeah. Agreed. All right. Moving on. Moving on. Uh, this was your week for one dumb thing. Yeah, I don't really have one other than my one little complaint about my inadequacies at Injustice. Yeah, get good. Yeah, That's fighting games. Say. Get good. Yeah, it, it's. I I'm I'm actually pretty happy with the entire kind of what's been coming out in the news. Everything we're getting ready for E3. I was gonna say. Um, we may or may not be back next week just due to the holiday weekend, but uh, coming up soon is E3, and I think we're going to do probably a multi-part episode for that. I think we're going to have to. And um, and it's largely going to be tangent-driven, right? So it's yeah, going to be gonna about be a news. lot of bullet points, and I mean, I think I'll bring the Nintendo side, Sean <laughs> will bring the Bethesda side. I mean, I'm excited to see what Bethesda's going to do this year. So there's a lot of rumors right now about what Bethesda's got in the wings, and I think there's some good guesses. Uh, unfortunately, most of the good guesses at this point aren't probably what most people want to hear. Yeah. Um, it is unlikely we're getting another Elder Scrolls game, and it's unlikely we're getting another Fallout game. But we don't know. And you know what? That's... Good. I mean, let those things sit. Bring us something new. 
Yeah. And we didn't talk about Prey, but Prey's on my list to kind of... Prey is interesting. I I've play. played it. And I would say, in many ways, Prey reminds me of Half-Life 2. Okay. Well, let's let's save that for another episode, because I do want to get it, and I do want to get into it, so... And there's um, an interesting twist in, in Prey that you okay. may or may not see coming. So, let us know what games you want to hear about. New, old, upcoming. And comment, like, subscribe, push yes. I don't know. We're on Twitter. Yes. At 4score7pongs. We're on Facebook at 4score7pongs. Subscribe. So... And uh, Sean and Sean and I have also talked about uh, doing a live streaming of some sort. And really, what we'd like to hear from you is, what game do you want to see us live stream? You know, this is an interesting segue for me because I started up a live stream um, series on my Twitch account, my personal Twitch, for a while ago, which I just didn't commit to and didn't execute very well, which was called the backlog. And so, one of the things I'd be interested in knowing, if we were to post like. 10 games off of each of our backlogs by game system and then let you guys vote on which ones we'd play or, you know, or just posted our entire game catalogs, which is thousands of I'm games still working at this on it. point. Yeah. Uh, you know, is there something that you think you'd really enjoy listening to Jared and I talk about while one or both of us played it? Um, the, the whole point I think with that is really to be interactive. And, and I know that some of our listeners have said they'd love to join us or love to watch and, and comment. Um, we're nailing down the technology piece right now, which is it's challenging to do multiple person streaming with Twitch as a platform, uh, and not playing on the same console, you know, or same PC with a split screen or something like that. What we'd really love to be able to get to, and we're not there yet is to be able to capture multiple PCs or multiple TVs, um, especially when we talk about the next four score and seven pongs competition where we could actually have, you know, produce it like an actual competition yeah. instead of just, you know, the three of us throwing things together in the basement 20 minutes before we go live. Right. Um, if you've got any suggestions or technology hints, we'd love to hear that too. Absolutely. Um, and something that, I'm running personally in the upcoming week is a Mario Kart Jamboree. Yes, you are. And so actually, I'm assisting on that. We're going to have three, possibly four simultaneous Mario Kart 8 setups. And doing um, a tournament. We're going to do a tournament. I need your help with some tournament software. If you guys have any suggestions, let us know. Oh, actually, I could tell you where to get tournament software. Hey, that's easy. Sean's got it. We'll put it in the show notes. Um, yeah. But we want to hear how we can engage with you, the audience on what you want to see again we're still kind of evolving this format i i think we're i think we've got a formula that we think works and those of you who've reached out to us have said that you enjoy it but we don't want it to become stale right so we absolutely want to make sure we're growing the podcast building some interactivity um and it's still early days right we're only on episode eight yeah, so. and I like I like personally the switch between current events, and then we go back and talk about things like roguelikes. Mm -hmm. What is that? What is that? I always hear about roguelikes, and unless you took the time to research, I think it's beneficial for everybody under kind of understand. And I think we're also going to mix up our main topics a little bit more. We've been talking a lot about video game topics. Yeah, and we've got some other things we want to talk about, like tabletop board games and you know movies. We may talk about genres of movies, or well, we we. 
mixed that up last episode. That's true. So though we brought the digital element back in, we did. But um, anyhow, I think that's all for this episode. We appreciate you guys listening. We'll talk to you next time. Thank <laughs> you.